Genesis chapter 45 from verse 1. Then Joseph could no longer control himself. Before all of his attendants he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household had heard all about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph came to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one that you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed, do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will be no sowing and no reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on this earth, and to save lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me father to to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all of Egypt. Now hurry home to my father and tell him, This is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You and your children and your grandchildren and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. I will provide for you here because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household, and all who belong to you, will become destitute. You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accorded to me here in Egypt, and about everything that you have seen. And bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin embraced him, weeping. And he kissed all of his brothers and wept over them. Afterwards, his brothers talked with him. One of those those scriptures that we have heard many times. And so as we explore this deeper, I hope that God will speak in a new and fresh way to each and every one of us. I am very fortunate to have a friend who is a lawyer. And so whenever I need things drafted, he is happy to do it for me at a lesser fee. I think anyone who has been to lawyers, you know how much they can charge you. Now, he's a great guy. And and the one thing that he's always told me is he said, Ryan, I, I need you to read through this. And I need you to understand every single commitment that you are making. I need you to understand every line, every paragraph. If it is not simple enough, I will explain it to you. Because the moment that you put your name to this, it has consequences. There are things that uh, fall in motion, and so you need to know what you are taking on board. And he said, well, then take it home with you, read it through, understand it, sleep on it, and then in the morning, take a look at it again. And then if you are willing to sign, please sign. So he's very methodical in terms of saying, I need to understand everything that I read. Now, I don't know if anyone's been on the internet, but there are certain times where they say, do you agree with this policy? 
and I don't read anything. I just want to get to the next page. So I just click yes. I don't know what on earth I'm doing. But anyway, so I sometimes do over, over, you know, read that contract over and over again. But there is one contract that we make that we take very lightly. And although we're making contracts with other people and other parties, and that's important, when we're making a contract with God, we need to really put it in perspective. That this is a very important thing that we are doing. And that sometimes before I say the Lord's Prayer and lead people in the Lord's Prayer, I should do the same thing. I should say, listen here, people, what I want you to do is I want you to take this back with you. I want you to read it line by line. I want you to understand the implications. I want you to understand what you are responsible for in this whole prayer. Then I want you to take it home and then sleep on it and then look at it again in the morning. And then if you are prepared to say this prayer with me, then let's pray. Because that is a contract that we are making with God. From the first line, we say, our Father who is in heaven. So what we're actually saying is that everyone who reads, whoever says this prayer is our brothers and our sisters. We share this Father. And so when we say our Father, are we prepared to see all people who say this prayer as our brothers and sisters? Do we take on the responsibility of being their family? Are we there to be with them, to guide them, to hold their hand, to support them um, through all things? And I don't know if I'm prepared to say that. But then there is one line that throws me consistently. And that is, Lord, forgive me my sins as I forgive others. Now that's a tricky line for me. I still hold grudges. I still have resentment. I still have unforgiveness in my heart. And what I'm asking God is treat me in the same way that I forgive others. And I'm not too sure if I actually like that line anymore. And I'm considering taking that line out of the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> because I'm very aware that I do not forgive completely. But I need my God to forgive me completely. So forgiveness is something that we constantly wrestle with as human beings. And especially as followers of, of God. And so today we're going to be looking at the story of Joseph and about forgiveness and about reconciliation and how do we make sure that we forgive others and how do we reconcile relationships that have gone astray. So let me take you right to the beginning, to the story of a man by the name of Abraham. Now, most of us know the story of Abraham. Abraham was... Uh, chosen by God to be the father of the Israelite nation. And he showed him the stars in the sky and the grains of sand on the, on the seabeds. And he said, you know, this is how many descendants you will have. But at that stage, he didn't have a single descendant. And so he wondered where on earth these people were going to come from. And so he decided, well, seeing as Sarah, who was getting on in age, couldn't have any children or wasn't having any children, he decided, well, he'll take matters into his own hands. And so he slept with his servant, a lady by the name of Hagar, and he had a child. And that child's name was Ishmael. And then, as God always does, if he promises you something, he will provide. Sarah then had a child, and his name was Isaac. 
Now, we see that these two families didn't speak. There was a terrible animosity between Sarah and Hagar. And so these two brothers that should have been sort of on equal footing were very much estranged. But then at Abram's death, Ishmael and Isaac reconcile. So there's a fractured family that keeps on happening. Then we hear the story of Isaac. And so Isaac has two children, two boys. And it's funny enough, we never hear about the girls, but I'm pretty sure there were lots of girls. But we hear about the first two boys, and they, they were Isaac's kids, Jacob and Esau. Now, Jacob and Esau, they came out at more or less the same time, but not exactly at the same time. And so Esau was the one who came out first and therefore had the birthright, and uh, Jacob didn't. But then in a stroke of genius and of uh, real sinfulness, he sold, he made uh, Esau sell his birthright for a pot of stew. So it must have been a really good stew. <laughs> but again, there's a breakdown in the relationship. Uh, and only again at Isaac's death is there a reconciliation between Jacob and Esau. And then we wonder why when Jacob becomes the father to a boy by the name of Joseph, there's a fractured family. There's a broken down family where reconciliation has to happen. Now, you have to understand the whole dynamics of what's going on. So Jacob sees this beautiful woman and decides that's the woman that he wants for the rest of his life. And so he goes to the father of this woman and says to her, and says to him, I want her hand in marriage. So the father says, well, if you work for me for seven years, I will give you my daughter. So he works very hard for seven years and he eventually goes through the marriage ceremony and realizes it's not the right woman. And so here he is married to Leah, where he wanted to be married to Rachel. And so he goes, well, okay, you know, I'm in this situation. I'll honor my agreement. And he, he goes through with everything, but he still wants Rachel. And so he decides that he goes back to the father and he says, but I want your other daughter's hand in marriage. And he says, well, the same conditions apply, seven years. So for another seven years, he has to work in order to earn Rachel's hand in marriage. But Leah's children, Reuben and Judah and all the other the tribes pretty much, they are raised looking after the flocks, plowing the lands, farming, doing manual labor, making sure that their wealth is looked after. But then Joseph, the first child of the favored wife, comes, comes out into the world. And the first gift that is significant is that uh, Jacob gives Joseph a present. And that is a coat. And what does the coat have? Many colors. No. <laughs> Andrew Lloyd Webber wrote that. Funny enough. But, but that's what we remember because we know the musical. Um, the thing about this coat is that it had long sleeves. And that was significant. Because if you gave your child long sleeves, it meant that they weren't going to do manual labor. So they were set aside to do the cushy jobs. And so you can imagine how Leah's boys were feeling when they see that Rachel's son gets a coat with long sleeves. He's not going to be working in the fields. And then after that, 
Joseph goes to his father and gives a bad report about his brothers. So he's breaking down his brothers in his father's eyes. And then Joseph starts to have these wonderful dreams. And he's very, very uh, poor with diplomacy or tactfulness. And he goes and tells his brothers that all of you are going to be worshiping me. So can you see where the rift happens? Can you see how the breakdown in relationship appears? And the brothers are just like, we've got to get rid of this lighty. And so in those days, it was cutthroat. The way that they were going to get rid of him, they were going to take him into the wilderness and kill him. But as God's plan is incredible, the Ishmaelites, so the followers of Ishmael, and we know who he is now, they were going to go to Egypt and they were traders. And uh, so they decided, well, you know what, they might as well make a couple bucks out of this kid, you know, at least give something back for the grief that he has caused us. And so they sell him into Egypt. And uh, that should be the end of the story. But it wasn't. We hear about the story of Joseph and how he was, you know, became a slave and then worked in Potiphar's house. And then Potiphar's wife took a fancy and then let her down and finds himself in prison. Terrible life. But at the end of the story, he's no longer wearing long sleeves, is he? He is working. He is serving. He's there on the chariot. He's making sure that the barns are full. He's making sure that things are happening. He is serving. And the first thing about forgiveness, that in order to forgive others, we need to understand that life softens us. If Joseph was to forgive his brothers and he was still wearing long sleeves, it would be very hard because everything revolved around him. Everything was easy for him. Everything should have been comfortable for him. And so when we sit without having gone through hard times and tough times and, and those kinds of trials and tribulations, it's very difficult to be compassionate. It's very difficult to be forgiving. It's very difficult to be soft and gracious and merciful. And so when unfair things happen, we start to soften. We start to grow in compassion. We start to grow in forgiveness. We start to grow in the image of God. And so is there anyone here who has experienced something that has been unfair? Anyone? Oh, okay, good. Okay. So I'm, I'm preaching to the right people. There have been many times in my life, many times in your life when you're going, God, where are you? But it's amazing how we need those times of trial. We need those times of challenge. We need to be at the rock bottom in order to soften in order to be shaped, in order to be molded by God into people who are able to forgive. Joseph would never have been able to forgive unless he had gone through the times of prison, the times as a slave, the times of working hard, the times of not knowing his family. It was only because of that that he was able to forgive. And so although we see it often as a curse, it is also a blessing that we go through those really horrible, intolerable times where we're asking God, where are you? It helps us to learn how to forgive. The other thing that I find quite incredible is that he went from a way of all his dreams were about him, about him being served, about him being worshipped. And he never sees the expectation that you are only to be worshipped if you are serving. Jesus shows us that. That the way that 
the world works according to God is that we serve. And when we serve, other people come around us. And when we serve, community is, is built. And when we lead, we serve. And so the whole thing is flipped on its head. The only way that we start to do God's will is by serving others. And this transition of, of Joseph is incredible. His dreams were all about him and about him being worshipped. And right at the end, he has the dreams are all about how to serve others in a better way. What God does in an incredible way is that he teaches us that the only way to live in union with God is to keep on serving, to take off our coat of long sleeves and to, to pretty much, uh, you know, get down and try and serve others and look after others. And um, those are the ways that we are able to serve God. And that is the way that God will use us. God will not use us if we are sitting pretty in our comfort zones if we are in cushy uh, areas, in, in cushy parts of our lives. God will use us to serve when we, you know, and, and that's the way that God has always worked. So that's the first thing, is that sometimes the terrible things in life are there to help us to become soft, to learn how to forgive. The second thing that we find in the story of Joseph is that he intentionally, he intentionally forgives his brothers. Now, it's one thing to say, you know what, I've forgiven them. But it's another thing to intentionally forgive someone else. There's a wonderful line from somewhere, and I don't know who said it, but it says, you know, unforgiveness that leads to bitterness is like us drinking poison and hoping that the other person dies. Unforgiveness that leads to bitterness is like us drinking poison and hoping that someone else dies. Now, what happens is unforgiveness, bitterness, resentment only kills us. The other person doesn't even know about it. And so often it's when other people have hurt us and we hold on to this and we can't progress, we can't move on, because the only way to move forward is to learn how to forgive. And for Joseph... I know that he had probably forgiven his brothers some part of that journey. But for him to get to a point where he intentionally brings his brothers in and forgives them, it then not only freed him to move on with God's plan, but it freed them to move on with God's plan. And so who in your life do you have to forgive? Who in your life do you have to reconcile with? We all have someone that we still really haven't let go of certain event that has happened in our lives that we really haven't got to a point of reconciliation. And so we need to come to a point where we intentionally forgive. We need to take an action of forgiveness to be able to set people free and to set ourselves free. I know that a friend of mine had gone through a horrible situation in his life and the person who he had to forgive was no longer on this world. And so he had to write a letter to actually forgive. He had to intentionally take an action and forgive them and set himself free. But maybe the person who you need to forgive or the person that you need to reconcile with is here. And not in this room, hopefully, but, you know, is on, is on this earth. And so maybe you need to call. Maybe you need to write a letter. Maybe you need to send a message. But you need to take that step of forgiving and intentionally forgiving someone in order to reconcile. 
God does not want us to be splintered. God does not want families to be broken up. I think, you know, the beginning of the scriptures, the beginning of the Old Testament had enough of fracturing families that really we need to be looking at our families first and then our friendship and especially our churches and our organizations. But there's fracturing everywhere. And so we need to intentionally forgive those who have done us wrong. And especially if someone has done us wrong. Because it says in the scriptures that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While someone else was in the other party, did something wrong to us, hurt us, Christ came and, and forgave them and reconciled them. And so often God calls upon those who have been hurt to actually go and start the reconciliation process. Those who, who have done nothing wrong. In the same way that Christ did nothing wrong, was totally pure, was totally blameless and without mm-hmm. sin. He was the one who started the reconciliation with us. And the other way around, if we have done something to someone else, we need to also be starting the reconciliation. So the time is now. You have to intentionally start the reconciliation process because we are followers of Christ, because he first reconciled with us, because we understand forgiveness. We are the ones who have to start the forgiving process and start to reconcile. The last thing that comes with reconciliation is always truth. It is not a coincidence that when this country changed from the old regime to the new regime, that we had to go through a process of reconciliation. You know, Nelson Mandela said it is not just okay to have justice, but we need more than that. We need healing and we need reconciliation. And so he set up a commission that when anyone had committed a crime in the name of politics or in the name of uh, the, old, the old system, that if people were prepared to come and stand in front of those who they had hurt and in front of those who had, um, uh, they had influenced through their, their crime, if they were prepared to tell the truth, the whole truth, to feel repentance, to feel um, that they wanted to change, they could be granted amnesty. And there were amazing stories that came out of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Times where they had to stop the whole proceedings because people were just weeping. Absolute incredible things that happened. And I'm so sad that we stopped it. There's still so much truth that has to come out. There's still so much uh, healing that needs to happen. But there was one story that particularly, you know, sort of cut me deep. And that came out of a book called um, Rumors of Another World by a man by the name of Philip Yancey. And he tells the story about a police officer, a police officer in the secret police with the surname of Fundenbrook. And Fundenbrook was giving testimony about what he had done in the times of the, you know, sort of the high security. And he had gone into a township and taken a 17-year-old boy out of a shack that he was living in while his mother was trying to hold him and and stop them from taking him. They took the 17-year-old boy and they put him outside and they shot him in front of his mother and in front of his father. They walked away. Eight years later, they went back to the same shack. They took the father. They put him in the back of the van and they went off. They killed him and they burnt his body so that they could not find the remains. And this woman had to see her her husband being taken off and killed. And she had to see her 17-year-old son being killed. 
And she was at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission on that day. And Funderbrook was giving testimony about how he was seeking forgiveness from the family and how he was couldn't sleep and because he wanted to change and he wanted to make things right. And so he told the whole story, no matter how ugly and, and sordid that situation was. And so the, the woman, the mother who was sitting there, she was given an opportunity to then speak to the person who had robbed her of her husband and of her child. And she stood up and she said, Funnenbrook, I want to tell you two things. So Funnenbrook looked at her and said, ma'am, you can say whatever you want. And she said, the first thing that I want is I want to know where my, my husband's ashes are so that I can bury him, so that I can make it right in, in terms of my culture. And I want closure so that I want to be able to bury him and give him a decent burial. And so Funnenbrook looked at her and I said, I will tell you where they are. I will take you there. And then she said to him, she said, you have robbed me of the people that I have loved the most. And I need you to know that I have lots of love to give and no one to give it to. So what I want you to know is that, A, I have forgiven you. But the second thing is that the love that I have to give, I will show to you. And I want you to come to my home once a month so that I can show you the love that I would have had for those two people. I want you to come to my home and I want to show you my love. And I want you to know that you are forgiven. And as a symbol of that, I want to come up and I want to embrace you. And so it was an amazing moment as she left uh, the, where the audience was and stepped up towards where Funderbrook was. And as she was walking up there, there was a, a, a congregation that was with her and they started to sing Amazing Grace. And poor Funderbrook heard nothing because he had collapsed, he had fainted. This whole thing had just taken too much out of him. But you often wonder how on earth this woman could forgive. And the only way that we can forgive is if we have a relationship with the Lord. That we understand how much we have been forgiven. And that we, then we can forgive. And it's not in our own strength. It is in the strength that God has given us because he first forgave us. But forgiveness cannot be complete without truth. We need to tell the truth. There is no such line in the scriptures as forgive and forget. We can forgive but still tell the truth. We can say how it has made us feel. It can, we can say how it has impacted us because of the pain that we have felt. We need to tell the truth. When there is someone who is stuck in a cycle of, of sin, we need to tell them the truth and tell them what we see in their lives. If they don't get out of that sinfulness, these are the repercussions. And we love you and we want you to get out of it. But we need to tell you the truth and we will hold you accountable. We need to hold people accountable, but we need to tell it with the truth. And so how much truth do we really tell? You know, often we don't tell the full truth because we don't want to hurt people's feelings. Well, you know what? That's not the most Christ-like thing. Jesus kept on hurting people's feelings because he wanted them to be transformed. He wanted them to be uh, changed people. He wanted them not just to be forgiven, but also to repent and to live in the image of God. And so we need to be telling the truth, not just to others, but also to ourselves. You know, we follow the way, the truth, and the life. And so as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we need to be the ones telling the truth.
in this world, there are lots of rifts. There is lots of brokenness. There are a lot of uh, people that are split. I mean, you can just look in our own country that we have these political ideologies that have separated us. We are one. We are one human body. We are one South African nation, but we do not act like we are one. Jesus, just before he went into Jerusalem for his final journey, sat up on a hill and looked down upon Jerusalem. And he prayed a very, he prayed a very simple prayer. And he said, Lord, may they be one as we are one. As the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one and work together and are the perfect community, may my people become one. And the sad point is that 2,000 years later, we are anything but. But the way that we can start to change that is to forgive, to ask for forgiveness, to tell the truth, and to serve each other. And so in this day and age where we feel so divided, Maybe it's time that we follow the example of Christ our Lord, who gave up everything, who served those around him, who told the truth no matter what it cost them, so that we might be able to make people one as God is one. And so that's my challenge during this Lent time. Let us start to forgive. Let us start to be forgiven. Let us start to reconcile. And let us bring all people to God who loves us. Amen. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the story of Joseph and that incredible power that he had that came from you, of how he could forgive those who had wanted him dead. And so, Lord, I pray that we will follow in the example of Joseph and of Jesus and of Moses and of all of those great people in the scriptures, that we can start to live in the way that you have taught us to live, in the way that you have taught us to forgive, in the way that you have taught us to serve, and in the way that you have taught us to tell the truth. And Lord, if we can do all of those things, may you bring all people towards the vision that you have had for us. Lord, we are tired of fighting, and we want to start to celebrate the community that you have meant us to be. So Lord, we pray for the courage and boldness. We pray for the strength and wisdom to make your vision the reality in our lives, in our families, in our communities, and in our country. Be with us always. Amen.